Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I am Callum. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast where I didn't write down a quote. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who Revival. And this week, we are taking yet another trip back to new, 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 new Earth, baby, with Gridlock. But as always, before we get into that, how are you, Cal? Oh, thanks for asking, James. I know you're always very sincere when you ask me that question. Um, Truly. It's not like we don't talk for hours upon hours every day on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it. Like we, like when we're talking on the phone, we can talk without thinking about it. And the moment we start recording, listeners, we just had to delete an entire intro because neither of us could figure out how to have an organic conversation about how our week was, <laughs> even though we were just on the phone for forty-five minutes earlier. So, what are you gonna do? Um, I guess fail repeatedly, but fail up is the only way. Yeah, that we can get through it. this. Um, but to answer your original question, I'm good. I was just about to say things are things are pretty good this week. Things are finally going my way, which has been nice after the year we've had. Um, there's some cool developments uh, here, and I'm starting to do more creative work as well, which is really good. Um, got a, a playwright meet actually over the weekend with some with a nice group of people, which is always a pleasure. And working on this new project for the middle of the year, so yeah, things are things are looking pretty good. What about you? Nice, nice. We love to hear it. Um, I'm also pretty good. You know, work has been um, mildly more consistent uh, in, a, in a sort of not quite post-COVID world for Australia, but in Adelaide, you know, things have certainly um, smoothed out to such a degree that, you know, normalcy is kind of settling back in. Uh, I joined a gym because I'm going to get really hot. So that's also exciting. <laughs> um, and my first review of the year should be going up on vooks.net sometime over the next week. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's just really good to be right again and kind of like getting back into the routine after you know things kind of went a bit off the rails at the end of last year mm. i think we can all sympathize with you james there on that front um i know there was a oh, obviously last year everyone the the big line was you know <laughs> do what however much you want to do and you know don't feel stressed if you're not doing anything and i think a lot of people probably took on more guilt than necessary about like their lack of output but um it's still good to yeah. hear um, that is it. We don't really have much Doctor Who news this week, uh, dear listeners. The only thing I was able to find after doing a quick cursory Google search is that uh, obviously Russell T Davies, former showrunner, we're in the middle of his run at the moment, um, has a new show out over the weekend uh, called It's a Sin. It's all about the 80s. Uh, it's in, set in the 80s in London and it's about a group of um, gay friends living there and um, dealing with the on set of the AIDS crisis pandemic, I guess I should say. And um, if you haven't seen it, it's a fantastic show, five episodes. Um, I binged it all in one day on Stan, um, which was a regret in some respects, um, but it's really, really good. And from this, Russell T Davies gave a little interview where he said that he wants to see Doctor Who get more ambitious, more ambitious. What do you think about that, James? Yeah, like... He did this whole thing where he was saying that he essentially felt like he was ahead of his time when you look at things like the MCU now and these, like, big, ambitious crossover sort of media events where you got TV shows and books and uh, movies and whatnot all kind of coalescing into one big narrative. And so, in a sense, and, like, this is something Callum's brought up to me before, like, off the air, but, like, 
<clears throat> I do understand where he's coming from and that he thinks he was ahead of his time in doing that with Doctor Who. Um, my only pushback on that would be, I don't think Doctor Who is remotely big enough to handle that kind of um, massive ambitious crossover that he's talking about because I personally think that when he pushed the show into that direction towards the end of his run is when it became its weakest. Mm. Um, But uh, looking at the popularity of it at the time and the way that people consume things like the MCU, I totally believe I'm in the uh, the minority on that uh, feeling. But um, we'll get to that when we get to the end of season four, because like I have so many thoughts and feelings on Journey's End and, you know, look, he's proud of it and uh, I'm happy for him, I guess is the most I can Hmm. say. Yeah, I, I I know how you feel, James, and my only sort of thought on that is that Russell T Davies was, if nothing else, fantastic at marketing, and oh yeah, um, yeah. you know, Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures only helped to bolster Doctor Who's own reputation and um and create the kind of MCU universe that we now see today, and it's like something that most major studios strive for is to have a franchise, um. But I also hear what you're saying, and uh, you know, Doctor Who isn't nearly as serious as uh, a franchise like it we're talking about here needs to be. You know, it's mm. such an irreverent, stupid show, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's just so expansive that the kind of the idea of this expanded universe becomes a bit silly, especially when you consider the fact that we have. I know it's not. Uh, television or film but we have big finish which uh has the licenses to expand on all the areas of doctor who that you know they can't capture on television and i think that for a lot of people that's enough so yeah but this is yeah. all theoretical i guess at this stage i was just sitting here i was like time lord immortal like no that's not what it's called uh, <laughs> I, I think you're referring to the um the thing that everyone forgot happened last year which is time lord victorious Right. Yes. Yep. There's your ambitious crossover <laughs> that nobody remembers is happening. Um, <laughs> Where were the women in that? That's all I have to say. Well, uh, that's it. That's it. I would like to maybe at some point do a little like special episode where we find out what happened in that whole thing, but I also don't want to pay to listen to it. So mm. I don't know. I guess watch this space. We'll, we'll see what they did to um, what they didn't do to Rose. Who knows? Who knows? Um, other than that, we don't really have much Doctor Who news, so let's talk about Gridlock. And we're slap bang in the middle of New New York. He has arrived. I need to talk to the police. <laughs> Do you want some happy? Bye, some anger. How much you want forgetting? Very well dressed for a hitchhiker. They say people go missing on the motorway. Some cars just vanish, never to be seen again, because there's something living down there. What the hell are they? Gridlock is the third episode of season three of the Doctor Who revival. It was directed by Richard Clark and written by showrunner Russell T. Davies. As always, we're going to do a quick check-in with IMDb before we give you folks a rundown of what actually happens in the episode. Uh, the Doctor takes Martha to New Earth, where she is kidnapped by two carjackers and taken to an underground motorway, where the remainder of humanity on the planet live in perpetual gridlock. That's the name of the show. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> They said the name. Um, (laughs) Yeah, good. Thanks, IMDb. Reliable as ever. 
yeah, yeah. A good steady hand is what IMDb is to this show now, which is nice. Yeah. It certainly makes for a f- um, not a very fun segment, but you know. Oh no, this is dry as fuck. <laughs> but um, let's. Uh, so this week, Callum has written out a plot description for us uh, because uh, Gridlock is a um, a dense episode, and so we're gonna try and just you know smash this part out, and then we can move on to our actual thoughts on the show. The Doctor takes Martha to the year 5,053, 30 years after he took Rose to the far-flung New Earth colony of New New York. Whereas Rose saw the beautiful apple grass pastures, Martha gets the slums, the undercity seemingly blocked off from the rest of the city high above. In a street where vendors are selling mood patches, which essentially amount to um, drugs that people slap onto themselves to give them a gateway into feeling a particular kind of way, uh, Martha is kidnapped by Milo and Cheen to to access a fast lane on the nearby motorway. The doctor goes to the motorway, discovering millions of cars trapped there in an endless traffic jam. He's taken in by Thomas Kincaid Brannigan, a cat man, <laughs> and his partner, Valerie. On the intercar communication system, they reach out to their car-spotting friends, the Cassinis, who identify the car that Martha was stolen by. The doctor challenges the motorist's adherence to blindly believing somebody will come save them from the perpetual traffic jam, which we find out has basically been going on for decades now, noting that no police or ambulance have ever been seen on the motorway. But uh, before he can basically convince them of this, he is cut off by the Daily Contemplation, where a uh, hologram in the form of a woman named Sally Calypso appears in their cars and uh, basically says, hey, we really appreciate your sacrifices out there on the motorway. We're coming for you soon. Don't worry about it. And then they all join and sing a Christian hymn together. The Doctor rejects the message of the song and starts sort of jumping between the cars, heading further into the motorway to try to find Martha. At the bottom layer where the fast lane is, he discovers that there are some devolved macra, which are these enormous crab-like creatures, and they've taken residency on the motorway's floor, attacking cars in the fast lane, including Martha's. The Doctor is then teleported away by Novice Haim, who keen-eyed listeners will recognize... Well... You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, Basically, she is from the other time that they came to New Earth with Rose in the hospital. She was one of the cat nuns. Um, She has been in the upper city caring for the face of Bo, as the two of them are the only survivors in the entire over city, which has been locked away from the motorists uh, because the rest of uh, New Earth has basically died out from a mutated mood patch that uh, went turned into a virus, basically. Um, In locking the motorists away, they saved them, but there is no power to now actually free them from the Undercity. So the face of Bo sacrifices himself to open up the motorway's roof, allowing the motorists to drive up and inherit New New York. Martha then challenges the Doctor to stop lying and tell her the truth about who he is and where he came from, and in a lovely little scene, the Doctor finally tells Martha the story of Gallifrey. I had a great time reading that synopsis, so thank you, James, for lending your dulcet tones to that. Hey, look, somebody's got to do it. Now... Now, 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 now. Do you want to now, give some context now, on our discussions <laughs> prior to this episode, James? I, I would, I would like to do that. Basically, if I mean, obviously, if you listen to last week's episode, um, there was tangible excitement that we were going to be talking about Gridlock because at the time I'd rewatched it and I loved it. Uh, Callum had yet to rewatch it, but he knew that he really liked it. He was excited that I liked it. We had a lot of positive energy flowing between the two of us, and then mm-hmm. Callum watched it. And really enjoyed it, but noticed a couple of like just little things here and there. And he called me. We ended up having 
a lengthy discussion about a lot of different very heavy concepts, including faith and religion and the human condition, essentially. Um, following on from this, I then rewatched Gridlock and found... It's not often that I say this, and this is going to carry us straight into our conversation about the episode. Um, I think that Gridlock is a fantastic sci-fi story that has a very ugly heart. Um, hmm. This is not an episode I feel good talking about anymore. I there's a lot of stuff in here that makes me just like, oh, this is this is not this is not what I come to Doctor Who for. Um, Callum, how well, how are you feeling? And that's. Um some very pretty words you've just said there, James. Um, the, I think that we can just summarize just like the feeling about this episode by saying that it's actually a secretly very conservative episode. Um, how much of that was intentional? Obviously, we have no idea. We are not the showrunners. We're not the writers. When, if you haven't already figured that out, um, <laughs> and so uh, this is all just our interpretation. But yeah, I, we had a very heated discussion where you were coming at the episode with your new perspective. I was having not having just rewatched it with all the nostalgia that I have for this show still coursing through me was uh, very much on the defensive. And we had this very long conversation that quickly kind of devolved away from uh, the episode itself and more about like actual concepts of faith. uh, It's expression in, society is like organized religion and all the troubles that come along with that. Um, And I think that ultimately I still hold true to the essential but general message of the episode about the essentialness of human uh, faith and kindness uh, and that community, the sense of community that the episode uh, brings out. But I think that there is just a lot of... uh, Again, unintentional references that are made, uh, jokes that don't come off uh, quite as they're possibly intended, that in addition to the ultimate message of the episode, which we'll get to, um, just add up to, yeah, like a, a, a very like, covertly conservative um, episode. And that was surprising to figure out and surprising. And I needed a bit of time to figure that out for myself. Otherwise, it would have been a very different recording. Yeah, like we're recording this on Thursday. We originally meant to do this on a Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it was. Um, we we needed some time to to sit with this one, which is rare for us because, like, I mean, it, it's at the end of the day, like it's Doctor Who. You know what I mean? Like we watch Doctor Who, we know what we like and what we don't like about Doctor Who, and we kind of can move forward with that. Um, I think the only other times on record so far for us in terms of talking about the show that I have been um sort of poked in this way by an episode was uh at the end of the mm. um christmas invasion episode mm. um with the stuff with um uh harriet jones when he essentially when the doctor like weaponizes misogyny to overthrow her and the show presents it as a, a, good both a good thing and a joke yeah it, it's it's weird you can't quite figure out what the tone they're going for there is and i've mentioned it before but like kablam is the most recent episode where basically what this boils down to for me is that like i think sci-fi is essentially a tool of 
if not radical politics, at least progressive politics. And so to see it used in such a way as to deliver a profoundly conservative message, um, I have no qualms in calling conservatism quite an ugly part of our society. Um, obviously, we're two gay dudes. Like, there, there's a lot of backstory going on with this one here for us. Um so I look at something like Kablam, which is its essential message is systems are fine. It's people that are the problem. And I think that's foul. And then I look at um, Gridlock here and its essential message is this muddled uh, conservative. And I mean, like Christian conservatively coded faith based mm. thing um, that rewards blind faith in the old ways. And it's. Yeah, it just made me really uncomfortable and doubly so because like it's a good episode of Doctor Who. Um, like I, I don't yeah. like the writing very much in the uh, meaning sense, but I think if you strip that away, like I notice a lot of complaints about this episode come down to like, oh, it's it's silly or it doesn't make sense or it's too overloaded. And like, yes, it's silly. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it's a little bit overloaded. But those things aren't inherently the problem. I, I think that if you just let yourself enjoy it, it's a great little sci-fi romp. Um, but, and, and this was kind of the crux of Callum and I's like little tiff the other night is that how hard we were going to go on this element of it because... We do talk about Doctor Who here and we want to have a good time talking about Doctor Who here, but I, for one, could not possibly ignore this much conservatism in, in a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, and um, you brought up something just then that um, reminded me... Uh, what, I, what, what I would like to say before we get into discussion is just that I do think, ultimately, that it is an episode with its heart in the right place. And that its message should have been and could still be something that's extremely positive. But once you start using uh, Christian iconography to convey a more general story of uh, essential faith as opposed to any faith that's ascribed to a particular religion, that's when you start getting into problems. And because this episode uses the hymn as it does and... Um, there's the, well, we'll go into it in more detail in a bit. Um, <laughs> but the, it uses Christian iconography, um, and very specific sort of character roles from the Bible to tell its story. It starts to come off less as like a general allegory and more of a very specific Christian allegory and not one that also, I think the other thing that people will say about this episode is that it's a satire of faith and mm. i th think that would hold up if it weren't for one specific scene which i guess again we'll get into um but yeah i do just yeah. want to say that i think that it has its heart in the right place i still like the episode and i still like the the message of community and banding together in times of hope hopelessness because this is something i said to you james was like and why i appreciate this episode on this level is because it is essentially a dystopian city that we are entering into with the undercity and the abandoned new New York and uh, all of the uh, things that come with like steampunk and um, the source material of this episode, which comes from like uh, judge dread and uh, halo Jones and all that stuff. Um, I just said a lot of stuff that we haven't unpacked yet, um, but <laughs> uh, because it is a dystopia, I appreciate the fact that it's not a dystopia that's devolved into, 
like, even though we have the kidnapping, like, it's for good intentions. Even though we have drugs, it's to drown out um, the bad things that are happening, not to, not for any nefarious purpose. There isn't, like, drug running or anything like that. There's mention of pirates, but you never see any pirates, almost to the point where they could just be a myth. And I like that this is a society that hasn't, that in the face of adversity and despair, hasn't devolved and separated and become isolated, but have instead banded together in community. And I think that's a message that I really want to hold true to and and hold up as an example of what good Doctor Who can do. It's that somewhere in the production of this episode, that initial message in that episode in the script has become muddled or maybe in the writing, but we can get into that. And it's, we end up with the episode that we have, which is, Mm. uh, conservative. So, um, yeah, that's it. And look, I, I think the, the scope of this episode, um, and we haven't done this for quite some time, but I think it might be actually good for us to sort of take it on a act one, act two, act three structure here, Mm. because they are very different, chunks of the episode like this is there's a lot going on here um so let's let's kick off with they land on new new earth and um or new new york whatever the fuck it's called um (laughs) and they land in this like dingy little like side alley uh which already i mean you think about like when he took Rose there, right? And it's so weird for us to pivot now back to being all like, oh, let's compare Martha and Rose um, because it feels like such a silly topic compared to everything we were just talking about. But that is the the joy of this show. And it's the joy of like the show that we're doing here is that we would, we do want to be able to like switch between these things a lot. So I'm just going to say this now. Rose gets to step out into a gorgeous rolling field with a perfect vista of the best of humanity. Martha steps into a rain-drenched fucking concrete corridor. Um, And it's just, again, so unnecessarily mean to Martha. I think it, and this we'll we'll get to this further along in the episode, but like it speaks to the difference of roles that Russell T. Davies has obviously set out for these two characters. And whereas Rose was... um, of a level with the Doctor, I think, by the time... But it's definitely by the time the second season had rolled around. Uh, Martha is very much his acolyte. And uh, mm. I'm going to use a very loaded word here, disciple. And we'll see a very decisive example of that later in the episode where she has to fulfill a role of a... Uh, what do you call those people that go around, like, trying to convince people of to join the church? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, uh, like an emissary, but like for faith. Uh, yeah, like a missionary. A missionary. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She has yeah, to no, sort totally. of fill a missionary role, and uh, yeah. So maybe there's more than one reason why they've gone to the slums, as she calls it. Yes. Yeah, and like because it is pretty clearly depicted as as the slums of this city. Um, they end up in this um. Like this big like market kind of stall alleyway, and it's it's dingy, it's gross. There's no natural light. It it's it's very unpleasant, right? And then you know all the stalls start opening up in a very like you know steam coming out, very uh, like vaguely Blade Runner esque inspired kind of sequence about like oh you know the fucking capitalism thriving in the in the seedy underbelly of a city in the future, and like yeah okay I get it. Um, 
And all of them are selling modifying, like mood modifying patches, which are these things like you slap them on your neck and you can forget the last you know, 20 minutes or the last 10 years or whatever it is. You can be happy in an instant. You can be sad. Um, and like, yes, like it is just technically mood altering drugs, but like it's, it's drugs, right? It, it is explicitly drugs. Mm. Um, it is a scene about drug selling in the slums of, of new New York. Right. Um, and that in and of itself is something that within the context of a sci-fi story, I think, you know, uh, the modification of, of the body and the mind is a very common trope that we, we encounter a lot in like cyberpunk and whatnot and shit like that. So I don't begrudge it being there from a, like a baseline point of view. Um, the first real flash of conservatism that you see in this episode though, is a like starkly anti-drug stance. And Mm. you know, yes, it is the BBC. Yes, it is a family program. And so I do understand that like to a certain degree, there needs to be a, you know, kids don't drink, kids don't do drugs like that kind of like, that's not even conservatism, right? That's just basic shit about the way that we deal with media that kids are going to watch. Yeah. That's fine. Um, the problem is that it imbues the doctor with this holier than thou kind of attitude about what these people are doing on the street. Uh, the scene culminates after Martha gets kidnapped from this spot. You know, he comes back and he takes out his wrath of what's happened with Martha on this street. Been like, I'm coming back here tonight. And if you're here, so fucking help me God. Like I'm shutting you the fuck down. And there's no sympathy. There's no empathy. There's no, Hey, this is an entire other culture that I don't understand. This is an entire class that I don't understand. There's just nothing but wrath and you are scum and I am here to shut you down. And it is, you know, it's, it's a, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say just like the doctor's stance here is like definitely contributing to, I think the overall picture we're trying to make of this episode, but it isn't out of the realm for this character. And oftentimes when it's done, like stories that involve drugs or drug running or like have anti-drug messages. He's taken a very similar, if not the same stance. And I, I, I not to shoot myself in the, in the foot, but I don't think that this is, uh, I, basically I don't think it's out of character necessarily. It's just everything else around it means that it takes on this darker edge right. than needs yeah. to be. That's it. And I mean, like, that's the reason why I say, like, the first flash of it, because, again, like, with the BBC context, like, I do understand why this particular story beat is here for the Doctor. Um, but, yeah, once once you take into consideration the rest of the episode, things start getting a bit weirder still. Um, and Martha's reaction to this street of drug vendors is, like, the exact same kind of, like, scrunching up her nose disdain for it. Mm. Um And I find that especially confusing from somebody who's trained to be a medical student, Um, like the somebody who comes from London, you know, like there are are so many experiences in Martha's life that you think would make her at least slightly empathetic to something like what's going on down here, Um, especially when you are using it as like a sort of a one-to-one allegory for real life drug use in the slums or in like lower economic communities and whatnot. Right. And so to have both of your main characters who are very explicitly the good guys, um, sort of come into a uh, poverty stricken area that they know nothing about and be like, this is fucking foul. We should shut it down. Um, it, it just, yeah, like it just reads as a, it, it is a very conservative talking point. It's a very, upper middle class white view of drugs. Um, and that 
it obviously gets messy because it is the BBC and I'm not expecting the BBC in two, you know, 20, uh, 2008 to be all like, mm, yes, let's have a nuanced conversation about the legalization of non-harmful substances. I'm not asking for that. Um, what I am asking for is the same amount of like um, sympathy and empathy that these characters do often extend to people in shitty circumstances and to not have it played out in this scene. Um, to me, it's just like, oh, that, the first kind of shot across the bow of like, what's going on here? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, so to add to this, uh, we get a scene where Martha is kidnapped by two two people who are, like, a, a very coded as very desperate. They've got guns. They're shooting them in, um, in Martha's face and the doctor's face. And they kidnap Martha and take her to a car to be taken to the fast lane because apparently in this world you need three passengers to access this special fast lane on this on the motorway. Um we get to the motorway and then we get to Thomas Kincaid Baranigan. Um, and I think he has a line and a joke that you, James, <laughs> have a problem with. <laughs> oh, don't I just. Um, I, I do, if we can roll it back for a quick second though, um, because I completely skipped over this when I was like, oh, let's go through the show chronologically. And then I just didn't talk about the ex- the first scene. Um, you do get a cold open on the the um, the motorway oh. with a couple who gets eaten by uh, the crab creatures that you don't see yet, um, which in and of itself wouldn't be a problem. I wouldn't give a single fuck. But uh, a choice was made to have this particular couple or um, I guess... No, I guess they are a couple because I, I think it's implied that they are the parents of the girl who's buying the forget-me drug, right? Uh, It's never sort of... S- sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Um, <laughs> so they are dressed in um, very uh, conservative clothing, which is a direct reference to the painting American Gothic, um, which is, is like... It's a super popular painting. Like you might not know it by name, but you definitely have seen it at some point in your life. It is of a, um, like two white people. They're a father and a daughter in the painting, but they essentially look like husband and wife. Um, they're both looking very sour and dour. He's holding a pitchfork. Um, it's, it's, it's a very popular painting. We might put a link to it in the show note. That is how they're dressed. And so our first introduction to this new New York is these people who are dressed for some reason, like, you know, um, I guess Christian pilgrims of of some sort. Um, and so like, I just thought it was important that we establish that that does happen at the beginning of the episode because it is part of the rich tapestry that's going on here. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely valid. And again, it part, it forms part of the tapestry that we're, I guess we're kind of actually, we're constructing an argument here. We're not even like, uh, having a general discussion about the episode. We're like, no, we've got a, we've got a stance and we're going to, we're developing it here, aren't we? <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so I mean, like, we can do like a more like general approach at the end of this, if you want, like we can do like, you know, all that character and theme stuff that we love talking about so much, but like um, we came out of the gate, like real hot on this one. And so this is why we feel the way that we feel basically. Um, but hmm. look, we'll, we'll talk about the good stuff when it pops up. Um, but I'm, it's there. I'm about to get to some actually, because uh, we, as like we're cycling back to where we were before in the story, um, we get the doctor and he is on the motorway and the motorway, I, I, and I think this is where we get into the, the good stuff of the episode because like the sci-fi elements of the episode, plus the general art and production design um, are magnificent. And 
some of the best CGI work the show has done to this point. And this is also one of the, I think probably the first time, I could be wrong saying that, but probably the first time where we've had an entire CGI uh, world created for Doctor Who, Um, Mm. at least in the new iteration of it. Um, And so the Doctor steps out onto this like byway and, uh, or lay-by, I think they call it. And he looks out over the motorway and it's just this enormous, like cavernous tunnel, a billion stories higher than him. Um, and just packed with floating, uh, metal box like cars. And they're all packed in one after the other and stuck on this, like on this endless, uh, traffic jam, basically, um, where the episode gets its title from. And say what you all about the concept, <laughs> I think, obviously, that we are asked to think about this episode in a very non... It's serious way. It's a nonsensical episode. And so the idea of people being trapped on a motorway for however many years is asking a lot of you as a, as an, uh, a viewer. That's for sure. Um, but I just think that this visual and the imagination behind it that created this world that we're stepping into is it's really impressive and I really enjoy it a lot. Um, but anyway, do you, <laughs> um, no, no, I, I, yeah, I just want to, I would do want to echo that because it is a, a, a visual treat. Um, and also just a really cool sci-fi concept. The idea of this like massive forever flowing gridlock of traffic that people are stuck in because, you know, they essentially believe that at a certain point there is an end to their journey. Um, really great shit. I, I like it a lot. Mm. Um, I like the concept of the cat man driving his car. Um, what is his <laughs> name? Kincaid? Thomas Kincaid Brennigan, and yeah, he's one of several different um, cars that we uh, encounter across the, across the, I was going to say across the gridlock, and I was like, I can't keep saying it, um, across the traffic <laughs> jam. And, you know, we get the Cassinis, who are like an old lesbian couple, and like a later point we get, um, like, there's like a nude couple, there's like a guy in a bowler hat, um, there's, uh, there's like, I, what my favourite one is this like, uh, later in the episode and they talk to Martha and her kidnappers and I think they're being attacked by the threat at the bottom of the motorway, which I guess we've already revealed to be the macra. Uh, um, the werewolf uh, woman? The, the wolf woman and her like two wispy white lesbian lovers, I want to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, again, this all speaks to it. They're not even given names. There's no backstory, but just like the visuals and the visuals basically help to create this world and you can fill in those blanks in your head. Um, I, I, as I said before, I just think it speaks to a, an incredibly rich imaginative mind and a team as well that would make this episode. Mm, totally. Totally agreed. Um, so, all right. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's do this. <laughs> Back into this. Um, <laughs> uh, like a never ending traffic jam. My, my qualms with this episode. No, no bounds. Uh, so with Thomas Kincaid, um, the doctor gets into his car and, you know, he's like, oh, I need help finding my friend. And Kincaid's like, oh, that's cool. I know these two old women who are like really good at keeping track of all the comings and goings on the freeway. So like, we'll ask them what's going on. Um, and he gets on the call with them and he's like, oh, hello. How are my two lovely, fabulous sisters today? Um, and they're like, 
buddy, we've told you so many times, we're not sisters, we're wives or whatever it is. And he's like, oh, cut out that modern talk. You know, I'm an old fashioned cat. And it's, it's played as this like cutesy, lovely little moment where it's like, oh, everyone's laughing and having a great time at him totally invalidating these queer women. And I just do not understand why it's in this episode. Um, it is for a gay man to write in homophobia into his imagined version of the future in an episode that has already done its best to be like, fuck drugs and fuck the people that use them. It, it was just another layer for me of like, wait, what? Like I did like a double take because the way he frames it as, you know, um, none of this new modern talk, you know, I'm an old fashioned cat. It's just like, are we this far into the future and the prevalence of homophobia due to conservative religions is still a thing that's going on here and still being treated as a joke? Yeah, again, we get another example of just an offhand uh, joke that, you know, would play relatively realistically in any other context. Uh, obviously, within this one, just beggars, I guess, a bit of uh, disbelief. Uh Again, not, and I don't want to sort of run around in circles because like I just said before, you know, oh, we're in an endless traffic jam, but you just have to believe that it is um, at the same time as being like this far in the future and they haven't stand out homophobia. Oh, it's not realistic. Like, obviously those are two different statements. Um, But (laughs) I guess the difference between those two things is that one is just a bit of story logistics and one is... Uh, an actual experience for people that is traumatic, um, to be invalidated, to have your relationship be discredited or discounted. Um, I think, I do ultimately think it's a joke that is entirely innocent, but, um, again, and I'm going to be saying this a lot within the wider context of the story and all the different examples that we're going to go through, um, is another bit of the tapestry yeah like it's just um I, I can't remember who it was and I wish I could but somebody wrote um a little while back this piece about you know in fantasy worlds or in you know far-flung future worlds or whatever basically if you're imagining a, a world that doesn't exist and you still put in racism or homophobia or sexism and you're not saying anything with it it makes me, and it makes it made the person who wrote this piece that I just can't remember, but like it makes me raise an eyebrow. It, it, I wonder why it's mm. there, especially when it is such a uh, just a throwaway joke like this. Um, and like I, I come down a lot harsher on this one than you do. I, I think it is basically. I get the vibe that they wanted to have an old lesbian couple in the show, but they couldn't do it without also making the people who'd feel uncomfortable seeing that feel comforted as well. And so they included somebody making a joke about it. Um, This is 2008. It is the BBC. Seven. I believe that that, whatever, who gives a shit? (laughs) History. Why does it matter? Um, I believe that that is probably what's, what's happened here. Um, I don't like feeling that way, but, it is the the way that things are, especially for the period of time that this emerged from. Um, yeah, I, I just, I can't stand it. Uh, uh, isolated in another episode, I probably would have been like, no, oh, that was fucking weird. Um, but 
because of the point we're about to get into next, because the next one is this massive, like the episode really goes for its push in this next scene. Um, we're going to sort of get into a bit of why it's such a trigger point for me here. Um, and, and I yeah. said this is Callum on the phone, but like, following on from them wholesale removing uh, Ricky's gay relationship in the Cyberman two-parter from last season, I can't help but feel these things are deliberate choices being made by a show that, despite being showrun by a queer man, is ultimately not a queer-friendly experience. Look, I, don't, I can't deny that it's not a deliberate decision. And again, when you have the benefit of doubt, you have to go with the, with the idea that whatever's on screen was approved. Um, intentionally so. Um, uh, and it's not a point I think that's worth debating, really, about whether or not it's innocent, whether or not it's harmful. If it's harmful, people will tell you it's harmful. Um, and you have to believe them, whether you think it's an innocent joke or not. Um, otherwise you're not being a very good ally (laughs) or member of the community. (laughs) Which brings us to our... The next scene that you're alluding to, James, which is uh, an infamous, beautiful scene. And I want to hold on to that word, beautiful, because I do really like it. That scene that sees the Doctor... It's Actually, let me start a little bit further back. It's The Doctor is, has like tried to get a hold of the police, but he's put on hold... He talks to the Cassinis and um, says to them, in your entire time on this motorway, have you ever seen a police officer? And they go silent. And then he's like, have you ever seen an ambulance or any kind of authority? And they won't answer his question. And he is he prods Thomas and um, Valerie, his wife, uh, to, to, to just... He's questioning them. He's like, you know, have you ever seen anyone out there ever? What if, what if no one's coming? What if this is it? And you're just going around and around and around forever. And at that point, he's like interrupted by this, by Static Calypso on their little screen. And she says, you know, let's all join together in the daily contemplation. And at that point, all the cars, we have to let to believe all the cars on the motorway join in song and they sing. I'm getting a little bit teary even thinking about it. Um, and they sing, him to come together as a community uh, in this extremely weird, extremely traumatic experience of being stuck on a motorway, but believing blindly uh, with no um, hint of rescue that somebody will ultimately come and rescue them. And I, I, I see what you're going to see. I see what you see, James, (laughs) when you see the scene. I do. I just can't deny the essential powerfulness of this expression of the ultimate goodness of humans. And if it weren't for specifically choosing a Christian hymn, which has all a very specific connotation, which I didn't realize until I researched it a little bit further. Um, it would be a perfect scene for Doctor Who and just like a perfect ex- like extrapolation of everything that the show 
has to say about like humanity and its indomitableness and its goodness and its uh, uh, through dark times will come together. Like I, lo- all of these things are just something that I, I hold dear in my day to day life in general. And so I think that's another reason why it was just such a, a not not traumatic, not at all traumatic, but just like very hard to swallow what you laid down, James, to me on the phone about mm. what's actually or what's underlying this this scene. Yeah. Because, like, the, the argument that... Not even the argument, but, like, the feeling that you're laying down is not a wrong feeling. Um, I think the concept of all of these people trapped on in an impossible situation coming together once a day to join in song as a means of feeling more connected and hopeful is inherently a lovely concept. Um And I also think that, you know, as you said, we're led to believe it's basically everyone is singing this song. And so the idea of like endless motorway full of endless people from all all walks of life, all joining in this like one daily contemplation to feel better about their situation is lovely. Um, I don't, I think it's very Russell T Davies. I think it's, it's big. It's uh, earnest. I, I think it's really good on paper. Um, and then you get it in the show. And now, obviously, the, there's stuff at the end of the story that's going to influence our discussion yeah, of this part here. So we're going to have to jump around a little bit here. Um, but the him is being taught to them by a hologram of a woman who doesn't exist. Um, <sighs> she is a artificial construction constructed by the wealthy and the corporate sort of entities of that world as a means of placating the poor who are in a bad situation. Um, And so you take that artifice of it and you're like, oh, okay. Um, You know, they're being sort of like, not tricked, but they are being... um, Tricked is is too hard a word. I, I don't want to come across that harsh, but like... They are essentially being sold the concept of faith, right? Through through um, something that's artificial. And that's its own commentary that uh, the episode doesn't give a shit about, doesn't touch on at all. And then on top of that, you make it the old rugged cross, which is not a sci-fi hymn. It's not original. It is specifically from our world, our history, our religion. And I hear a song that talks about sinners being lost and that talks about essentially um you know faith in this all-powerful system of religion will one day mean that when you die you get to exchange your shitty life for something better in the afterlife um i hear that in a show like doctor who in the far fong future where people are still dressing conservatively and making jokes about gay people and I get very uncomfortable watching this episode because it does nothing to criticize this particular slant of faith. Mm. It rewards them for being blindly faithful to a Christian dogma. Um, yeah. And I, I find that utterly perplexing. I think if you look at those lyrics, it's, it's, it, you're absolutely right in your, uh, interpretation of them. In fact, you don't, it's not really interpretation. It's pretty stark what it's saying. Um, mm. but it, is definitely a mirror of the motorist situation. And if this were a cleaner or a better satire, it would be a perfect accompaniment, really, to the situation. Oh, yeah. It'd be um, fantastic. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, it's all about um, adherence to the cross uh, and sacrificing for it and um, delaying any kind of salvation for yourself just endlessly, endlessly um, castrating yourself. I don't think that's the right word uh, in front of this cross. Anyway, um, a bit of history about this song, which I was surprised to find, is that it was written in the... In America, actually, in the 1910s, um, from uh, the in- in evangelical uh, movement, which is the, like, traveling pastors and um, churches that would go around and uh, preach the word of God, um, and which I think eventually turned into, like, preachers on the radio, preachers on TV, um, the kind of modern tele-evangelists that we see today. And mm-hmm. wh- which is, like, one aspect of it considering the fact that this would have been a song that was very popular. It was a popular song in its time, but obviously being a Christian hymn would have been very, very popular in like Bible Belt, Middle America, which was not a good place to be gay uh, or anything really, except white and straight um, and a man. And um, (laughs) what's even worse is that like the KKK wrote their own version of this song called The Bright Fiery Cross, and if you know anything about the KKK, you know that one of their practices to intimidate and threaten African-Americans and people of color in America was to do cross burning. And uh, so that's a whole load of context for this so- song. Mm. And again, I just want to go back to, I don't know why I have to keep bringing this up, but I just feel like I need to, is that I feel like it was an innocuous choice of a song probably one that Russell T Davies or somebody like heard at school or liked the sound of it, or they felt like it fit and they put it in and didn't think about the, the context in which it might've come around or the wider context of the episode. Um, and, and I think, yeah, like it, it might be a good point at, at this point to consider the other scene that matches with this one to create the full kind of non-satire of this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, like, that's it. Like, you know, the the whole concept that, like, this could have possibly been a satire of faith because, like, you know, like, there are some lyrics in the song that would actually support that read of the text. Um, it, you just, I can't give that any sort of, like, weight because hmm. the episode um, does nothing to support that read of things. So, and, I mean, like, satire doesn't have to be explicit. I love a good, subtle, like, sort of um, joke on somebody or, or critique of something, especially Faith. Fuck, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but th- that is not what Gridlock is. Um, and Gridlock has so many things in motion that, like I said, like, you know, we later find out that like the face of Bo and a disgraced cat nun, are the people that have been sort of like sending out this, uh, fake message of religious hope to people. And that's just never, it's never talked about. It's never touched on. It's just like, oh, well, you know, the poor huddled masses needed something to believe in. Why not give them fake religion? Um, yeah, but even that isn't the biting comment of the episode it's just straight faced faith i think that you I, I think you're absolutely right and it's something i didn't really notice on first watch but yeah like up until the point where the doctor is teleported into the senate it's a pretty uh decent episode about the like corrupt like very obvious in fact about the corrupt over city lording it over the undercity and 
trapping them down there and doing awful things to them. Um, great. Brilliant. And a bit of uh, faith-based satire on top of that. Easy. Can do it. But the minute when... Well, actually, the minute that the episode breaks is when you go up to the Senate and there's the reveal that they all... The entire Overcity died. They are gone. Uh, they mutated and uh, they got sick and died in, I think, seven minutes or something. Again, this episode has a real problem with, like, time <laughs> and <laughs> the length of time that it takes to, for things to happen. Um, but... When, when the, yeah, the minute that we get that twist, um, it turns from being an episode with a satirical edge to something that's extremely earnest and hopeful, but earnest, um, which is this prevailing vision that, you know, blind faith won't, blind faith in the, like, I think this is on the, um, the BBC America site, blind, uh, faith in the benevolence of authority, I think is the word they use. Um, mm. actually is rewarded in this episode. And you are justified to have not just faith, but a, a Christian faith because they are yeah. saved by, I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. They're saved by <laughs> a nun, as we've noted, a, and two godlike figures, one of which has his own disciple in the form of Martha. Actually, and as I'm thinking about it now, the face of Bo also has his own disciple in the form of um, Novice Haim. Like, this is stuff mm. that <laughs> you can't ignore the obvious uh, symbolism and similarity between, like, the characters from the Bible. And so, I think I noted to you, James, in, our, in my notes, but, um, you know, Russell T. Davies has spoken on this before because he is an atheist of all things. He is an atheist. Mm. And he said in the past that he likes to use Christian imagery or, uh, for lack of a better word, story beats, um, in his episodes, um, to what end I'm unsure. Um, but <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, here, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that impulse. If it is, deployed correctly and with the right level of uh, criticism and it's got to have both sides of the argument, basically. This yeah. is not doing that. This is presenting a very firm pro-religion, pro-Christian message that I'm, I'm not yeah. entirely comfortable with now that I've been made aware of it, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you look at, like, last season, um, we both talked for, like, a, what, an hour and a half about how much we loved the um, Satan Pit episode. It has Satan in the fucking title. Like, <laughs> we're not opposed to Russell T. Davies' deployment of religious... Um, I, I, this is actually a conversation we had the other day. I'm, I'm going to bring it up again here because I think it's worth talking about. But, like, it's... When he lifts the aesthetics of religion, I think he, he he can do some really fascinating and interesting things. I think the Satan Pit works so well because, yes, it has Satan in the title, and yes, it is a literal giant red muscle, muscly demon man, right? Mm. Very explicit Christian um, aesthetics right there, yeah? But it uses those things to spin out into a much larger conversation about the concept of faith in and of itself, about what the doctor believes in, about what, um, I forget her name, but like the woman he goes down into the pit with, there's that whole bit about like how she's from a different culture and how there are things repeated across religions in different cultures. Loved it. Stunning. Yes. Work King, etc. 
And then to come to gridlock where it seems like all of that self-awareness has just been stripped away. And instead of him using the aesthetics of religion, he uses its iconography and iconography is imbued with meaning. It's imbued with context. And he is just shoving that into this. Mm. Um, And to your point about him being an atheist, to, to my point about him being gay and including homophobia, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't mind that you do these things if you are making a point about them or if you're using them to criticize or to, you know, subvert expectations, to do Mm. something with them other than what they are at their face value. And there's nothing in this episode to me that suggests that it is anything other than its face value message. Yeah, a hundred percent. And just to go back to what you were saying before about the Satan pit, like that episode, those two episodes do a very, very careful job of, even though it is about the devil and there's a talk of the disciples of light and an obvious heaven, hell thing happening there. It is so careful to not ascribe it to one faith. It They make yeah. mention of a whole bunch of fictional faiths as well as, uh, I don't think they even use the word Christianity or the Bible or any of that stuff. It's just, it's just not mentioned and so you can make that connotation in your head but you know that it's making a much wider point about how all these different religions in human culture which is essentially what all science fiction is uh talking about um all have very similar figures in them of a heaven of a hell of a god of a devil of all these different things and it's criticizing as well as playing up to um the just well (laughs) faith but it yeah. also holds at its core the same message that Gridlock is doing, which is that, like, if I have nothing else, I at least have faith in people and the people around me. And Gridlock is doing the exact same thing. It's just deployed in a very, very different way uh, <laughs> with a whole host of issues around it, which we've already talked about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, I said this to you, but, like, I, you know, if you replaced the hymn with, you know, Let's say um, once a day, uh, the face of Bo understands that, like, for these people to get through what they're going through, they need to be able to, um, like, openly all communicate at one key moment a day or whatever it is. And so over time, because they've been down there for so long, they have sort of all agreed to learn this, like, one unifying song that isn't a religious song, but is just something that they all sing together or, like, something that Mm. they all do together for that one moment of the day. And so instead it becomes a story about them having faith in each other instead of a power on high. Um, the, one of many ways that this episode could have been just tweaked in little ways to say something, mm. <laughs> you know? And I just then in my head was thinking to myself, oh, well, I'm not actually sure if it would work if it wasn't a hymn because the hymn has all the orchestral and choir and it, it sounds powerful when it's sung by a group. And then I was just like, yeah, but no, because if it were... A contemporary song or uh, I think a made up song would be a wrong choice uh, because it would just have it would have no connection for the audience whatsoever. What you're saying is that it should be Toxic by Britney Spears? <laughs> Look, we've been there. We've done that. It would have. Yeah, it would have appreciated it. Maybe I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. Would have been better. Oh, that would have been nice. Um, but Brannigan wouldn't have sang that though because he's like, oh, only two genders, and I'm a man. He's a fucking cat. I don't. <laughs> I'm sure the cat is also a fucking turf, is what I'm saying. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? This is the future we're talking about. Um, Fuck this cat. 
<laughs> Honestly. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah. Like, <clears throat> it's also... Run, jumping just a little bit further ahead in the season, actually. This episode is setting up a lot of things that are going to get uh, paid off a bit in the f- last three stories. Um, but in general, I think, in, like, with Martha, we get the scene where she has to... Where she It's not even where she has to do anything in particular, but she's the... To escape the macro in the fast lane... Um, the kidnappers and her, they've switched off their car, which I also love because I love the idea of like, because they're all anti-gravity cars. And I'm like, did they just drop to the <laughs> ground or like, are they hanging in space? Like what's actually going on there? And that's uh, another point. And they're, they're just sort of waiting it out because they only have eight minutes of oxygen left. And, you know, uh, I think Milo or Cheen asks about like, you know, who is the doctor to you? And and Martha just goes like, you know, I, I, I think I have a crush on him. But I barely know him. And then Sheen's like, well, what do you mean? We can't, like, head... Our only hope is on a complete stranger. That makes no sense. Even though they've all been believing in this, like, amorphous, nameless thing that's going to come save them. Whatever. Um, And then Martha's has to... She basically just has to convince them that, actually, no, he's good. And the reason I know he's good is because I just know. And he's going to save us and you have to trust me. And it's not a scene that's out of the ordinary for any particular companion to say, especially not with Russell T. Davies, but because of everything we've just said and the role that Martha will take later in the season where she has to, spoiler alert, uh, where she has to literally trek the earth to convince everyone oh, that, yeah. yeah, exactly, that, uh, you know, the doctor is good and to, and to chant his name and resurrect him. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you paint Martha in this very specific doting disciple uh, role, and uh, that's its own problem. And I don't think it's worth going into uh, in this episode because there's actually much better stuff to do with in terms of Martha and the Doctor's relationship, um, which we'll talk about towards the end. Um, but the other thing that's really annoying is well, not annoying, but like the the. The episode Utopia, which we're going to talk about later in the season, does a much better job of being a satire of blind faith because of what we learned there about the future humans and their strive towards Utopia. And it's uh, frustrating because that's also an episode written by Russell T. Davies. Um, And so you know that these things are on his mind. You know that these are themes that he's like obviously passionate about and obviously seeding through in this episode in this season which is probably his strongest in terms of its overall theme and message uh and the unifying yeah. factors between all of the uh, episodes um it, but when you watch that in the context of this episode you're just like oh, i don't understand how this happened <laughs> and the only uh, answer i have is that it, it, it came about during production of the story i have literally no evidence for that but yeah i know what you mean like there's just so many ways that this episode could have fit into his criticism of godlike faith and godlike beings as well like Mm. it's it is all there um but then it feels like it rushes to its ending which admittedly its third act contains some of my favorite parts of this episode if i'm just 
just watching it, you know, if I'm just trying to have a good time and, and enjoy myself. Um, cause you know, the doctor gets teleported up to the upper city into this like very, I mean, it's Coruscant from Star Wars, mm-hmm. very inspired in a very explicit way. Um, and he gets put into this like amazingly massive hall where the, the government bodies used to meet and just full of all these dead skeletons and the scope of the episode gets blown wide open and it's, it's stunning. It's, it's a really great reveal. Um, it's a really interesting sci-fi concept that there's like this locked off lower class of the city down below but technically they were locked off for their own good there's some commentary in there about you know class war not class warfare but like you know assumed responsibility of the rich over the poor and all that sort of like good juicy stuff also the rich Um, are taking drugs and oftentimes we don't get to see that but the rich take a lot of drugs well, there is also that, that like, you know, the implicit message is like, if you take drugs, your whole race will die out in seven minutes flat. And you're like, uh, mm, uh, sure. Okay. I just wanted to get high and fucking eat some ice cream, man. But sure. Okay, Russell. Um, uh, and then like, you know, the, eventually, obviously the motorways open up and they're able to divert power. Sally Calypso, the fake religious figure is then literally replaced by the doctor in hologram form being like, that Sally bitch, she wasn't real. I'm real though. Believe in me. And then King K, the dumb motherfucker that he is, is like, oh, this man's pure magic. He is. And it's like, they just trade one fake religious figure for another, but whatever. That's a whole other thing. The episode just doesn't give a shit about. Um, and then the poor literally rise up from the undercity and take over the land of the wealthy. And that is a radical political concept that the episode again does nothing with. And so it's just so clean and like the sun is rising and another hymn is playing and it's like, oh, we're ascending to God's light now. And it's just, it's, Yeah, like a hundred percent all of that is there. But I do just want to say, I cried when the motorist got free. (laughs) And I think if you can watch that scene devoid of the obvious uh, symbolism and other stuff we've already mentioned going on there seeing all of those characters who you you feel have you can feel have been trapped in that motorway for however many years seeing the sun and hugging each other kissing crying crying and and flying up into the sun like i i i can't deny the power and like i said before with the other scene the powerfulness of watching that um and i think that it probably speaks to why so many people do rate this episode highly um is that it does hit a very human point with those scenes um oh i mean like the optics of this episode are fantastic. Like, if you don't think about too much what's going on here, I think you'd have a really good time here. Like, it's, well, you did. You, it's you did. Well, that's it, and, and like, that's it. The first time I watched it, I did have a really good time. It's well acted. It's mostly well written in terms of like the moment to moment dialogue. Um, the CGI is fantastic. The ending is uplifting. Then you get this other amazing little epilogue moment with um, Martha and the Doctor that we'll get to when we start finally talking about some character stuff here. <laughs> um, but I, I think like to just like put a bow on this sort of like uh the thrust of our argument about gridlock here or at least my argument is that like i don't i don't prescribe malintent here i I would never want to do that to a creator uh we don't know them we don't know what what they were what was in their hearts at the time um but it doesn't change the fact for me that when you take gridlock as a whole it presents a very conservative view of uh humanity of a lot of social issues um and ultimately does nothing but uh essentially reward blind faith in a system that 
I mean, like, you know, cards on the table has done a lot of personal damage to my life. Um, Mm. And so I can't in good faith be like, oh yeah, it's just like another episode of Doctor Who. It's like, no, there's a reason we had to spend 45 minutes really pulling this one apart uh, because it's rare that an episode um, hits me this hard, I suppose. Look, no, that's fair. And actually, if I'm being honest, I really have enjoyed our discussion of this episode, even though it has challenged me uh, to my core about what I thought or felt about this episode. Um, Like I said before, we're not doing... when This isn't even a review, I think, anymore. It's a thesis, an analysis uh, of this episode. Um, Like, you wanted a queer lens on Doctor Who. This is a queer (laughs) lens on Doctor Who, you know? (laughs) Which, you know, and not... um, exclusively queer because you know being queer is also being part of the world and being political and that means you have a a wider perspective on uh issues even if it is from a i don't want to say biased because it's not biased if you've had traumas inflicted on you um well maybe it is and but i don't want to say biased with the negative connotations that come with that word um I think the word you're looking for is like context or like uh, sure. different lived experiences being applied to a piece of media that like, I mean, I, look, I, I don't speak for everybody here, but like, you know, a lot of discussions and popular discussions about popular sci-fi um, bits of media are led by a lot of straight people. Mm. And so there's a lot of stuff that maybe these people don't notice in the same sense that like, we don't notice a bunch of shit that um, people of color would notice when they're critiquing something like this. True. Um, everybody has the the shit that they miss. Um, and we're not fortunate, but like, I, I would say that like the reason we, we got into doing this show in the first place is because we wanted to have our perspective on it. Um, and I think this is like really the first time we've, we've gotten to be like, Hey, we're a queer show. <laughs> Oh, truly. And I'm uh, pleased that we've at least got there eventually, even though not it, yeah. it's not something that we can do every single week because not every single episode uh, promotes this kind of level of uh, deep thought. Um, no, no, no. Uh, you know, next week we're just going to be like, ooh, Daleks, Manhattan, Pigmen, please <laughs> give me more. I'm so um, excited for those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> me too, but we're going to get to that. Um yeah, so you mentioned earlier that you, like, you know, we should get to the characters, and I think that's probably a good place to finish up. But I do just want to say that this episode has a big cast of supporting characters, and I feel exactly nothing about any of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know they're there half the time. But um, I do I do enjoy Novice Haim, and I love the cat people in general. I think the, just the prosthetic work on them is lovely. Um, I like the actor, this is so random, the actor who plays Cheen, one of the, of Martha's kidnappers, because I, I her, she's played by Lenora Critchlow, and she's in my favourite Black Mirror episode, um, and she's just a really good actress, I really like her, so it's nice to see her pop up in this. Um, but yeah, like, we've got Thomas and Valerie and they're fine and somehow managed to procreate kittens, which I don't even want to think about, um... And you've got the Cassinis and a good range of uh, supporting characters, but they're all essentially props in building the world and not fully fleshed out characters. And that's not a criticism. That's not a criticism at all. Like this episode has much, has its its focus elsewhere. I get it. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) 
I suppose. I like the Cassinis in in theory. Um, this is something that comes up a lot when you look at um, older types of queer representation, but um, they are like just profoundly sexless. Yeah. Um, to the point where y- if you thought that they were two sisters, you, you could believe it based on what you see of them in this episode. Um, and I, you know, whatever. I, I think that's, it is what it is. Mm. Um, the rest of the characters, yeah, I, I feel pretty much nothing for at uh, all. Um, also, it's just kind of there. Also, um, Milo, uh, he's hot. That's all. Yeah, that's about it, really. Yeah, I knew that's all you wanted to say. I, I <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I think that uh, yeah, no- novice Haim, I-, I was happy to see her again. I think I think her reuniting with the Doctor is a really sweet little moment. Um, I like the concept of you know she's essentially been here trying to revitalize a dead world as penance for what she was doing in the hospital. Um, I I think that's really lovely and sweet. Um, the face of Bo stuff, I uh, I know, like the face of Bo, and I definitely get a little bit like misty eyed when he dies, like mm. his container cracks, and then like the the shot of him just like out of his container dying on the floor with Martha coming over to him for the first time is is so wonderful mm. and sweet and very Doctor Who. And um, my my issues, I I didn't want to bring this up because it's so nitpicky, but at the same time, it's kind of not like. I want to say for those of you out here who out there who have seen Gridlock and are just screaming at yourself right now, sure, but this episode doesn't actually make any sense. I know, like, mm. I think this episode is a complete failure of uh, technical sort of world building writing. Nothing in here works when you actually think about it for longer than a second. Um, my my most recent example that I remembered today was if the face of Bo is controlling the computer system that's letting them move in a big circle in this motorway, why is he moving people down to the fast lane where the macro are? Who fucking knows? It's just part of the episode. Don't think about it. <laughs> I mean, you could sort of hand wave that away as saying that, you know, the macro, they're not... The given the fact that we've given them literally zero airtime on this episode should speak to their significance in the wider episode in general. Um, but you can kind of probably get away with it by saying that they're not even aware of their existence. Um, but he would be aware that cars are like constantly disappearing when they go to the fast lane, right? Maybe he just thinks they're all bad drivers. Mm, mm, yes, yes, totally, totally. Um, anyway, look, I'll, I'll drop this line of thought because it, like, it's one of those things you can't pull on one thread here without yeah. the whole thing falling apart. I just wanted to state unequivocally, yes, I think it's badly written look, world building. It's an it's an episode <laughs> of aesthetics over logic, I would probably say, and uh, an episode yeah, of yeah. feeling and aesthetics. Uh, mm-hmm. Not yeah, like it's a Doctor Who. And that's not to hand wave it away and be like, well, it doesn't have to do that because it's Doctor Who. Like, obviously, we should be trying to attain a level of perfection and excellence in everything we do. Oh, that was uh, maybe not so much. But um, <laughs> not even that because I mean, like Doctor Who is frequently silly and yes. nonsensical. You know, but like, there's a you get certain degrees of it in other episodes, whereas well, this episode mm. is just constant. <laughs> One of my favorite like eras of the show is the Seventh Doctor era, which is which this episode reminds me a lot of actually, and. What that era does is not present worlds into, like, alien worlds to build them, but to present a metaphor for um, our life now. And, you know, you've had Paradise Towers, which is about social um, degradation, and uh, the Happiness Patrol, which is just, like, a big old uh, satire of Margaret Thatcher's Britain. 
And, you know, those episodes work because the, the, the thoughts and the themes and the satire at the heart of them are working so well. Um, and this episode, I think, is on that level. But, you know, obviously, for all the reasons we've already talked about, doesn't really work. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. For reasons that we have thoroughly explored. Mm. So, um, we are still technically talking about Doctor Who, though. So, let's let's talk about these characters and, and some stuff that goes on in this episode to sort of see us out. Um there are there's a lot of Martha moments in this episode. Mm. Martha is a as Martha, a, Martha, Martha. <laughs> she has a decent chunk of the story, and uh, I touched on her briefly with the talk about you know Martha being a disciple and all of that stuff there. Um, but she does get some really good, nice moments with the, her kidnappers, and she gets to show off her like extreme flexibility as an actor. Freem Adjaman does. Um, she's got a lot of nice comic moments lots of moments that remind me that she is significantly older than rose which i really appreciate because i think she can just pull off that mature edge um and that cynicism slightly better um and she's uh, ultimately still the same hopeful character that we've seen um she and the doctor have a what would be a natural end point for the crush storyline um, in this mm. story, which unfortunately is not the case. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that like, the more I think about season three, the more I'm like, yeah, like pretty much every episode you could be like, Martha no longer fancies the doctor and that's a good thing. And they just keep bringing it back. Yeah. Keep on bringing it back. Um, yeah. The way she talks about him in this episode, um, I found particularly supportive of that concept though, because like we're what three episodes into their arc now. Um, they've had their kind of like lighthearted, goofy witches adventure last week. And this week is the first time that like properly separated real sense of danger going on for her and whatnot. Um, and when push comes to shove and, you know, she gets asked, what do you know about the doctor? And she's basically like, fuck, I actually know nothing about him. If I died here, Mm. my parents wouldn't know where I am. I just left. Like she's like the full weight of traveling with the doctor hits her in this episode. Um, in the same way that it it hits him that he hasn't really been like seeing her for who she is. Mm. Um, he's just been running around trying to forget about Rose. Basically that part is much less explicit, but it is still technically there in the subtext. Um, and Martha's conclusion of of that moment for her is to finally press him on being like, Hey, don't bullshit me, man. Like, don't, don't try to give me the runaround. Don't try to like smooth talk me. Just tell me your truth. Tell me what's going on with you. And so like it culminates with them, uh, you know, back in drug alley now that it's been shut (laughs) down and cleaned up by the doctor. Thanks buddy. um, Where the two of them get to sit there and finally, have a discussion sort of on these two dingy chairs that they find face to face as equals. Um, and yeah, it would have been a really good launching pad for a new form of their relationship. But unfortunately, as we see next week, it's just straight back into, um, Oh, but the doctor. Yeah. I really like the way that she challenges him at the end. Um, and it, it, it I'm trying to find a natural way to sort of segue into what I actually want to say. Um, uh, Martha and him have, a, I think, a really nice different scene at the top of the episode where, you know, the Doctor... Because at this point, she's not even a full companion. She's just on a one-trip status and then going home. Ugh. Um, But at the top of the episode, the Doctor says, you know, you've had one trip into the past. How about a trip to the future? And then Martha says, can we go to your home planet? And I love the way that he, like, brushes it off and he's just like, I can't even begin 
to answer this question, Martha. <laughs> um, but, you know, she presses him and she's like, you know, oh, come on, you know, what's it really like? And he tells her, he, he doesn't lie necessarily, but he, you know, he, the way he t- describes Gallifrey to her, it's never with any kind of idea that it's gone. And he gets to, as he says at, at the last thing, he's like, I got to pretend for a moment that it was still, that it was still there and it was still alive. And I think this, all of this, plays into the theme of the episode, which is like, you know, just as the hymn gives the motorist strength and the ability to go on on this endless journey, and, you know, obviously our main character of this TV show is on another endless journey, not for any particular reason, just because there they are, the main character of a television show called Doctor Who, and they have to keep travelling. Um, and the, the idea that this story that he tells himself or that the opportunity he gets to remember Gallifrey, um, gives him a similar sort of strength, but that it's misguided and that eventually he actually finds that it's his, it's the companions and the honesty and the kind of relationship he can share with them that it is the thing that keeps him going. Um, you know, it's short and it's sweet and it ultimately, I don't think amounts to a whole heap in the long run for this doctor. Um... Uh, I could be proven wrong on that front. Time will tell. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a really nice little scene. And uh, annoyingly, that moment when she challenges him, which I also love when she pulls up the chair and she's just like, and he's like, oh, you're just going to stay here then. And she's like, until you talk to me properly, yes, I am. And he's like, fuck yeah, there's that Martha I remember. Um, yeah, and- there's the Martha from episode one who was like, you have to earn the title of Doctor. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. I love it when she shows herself. Um, that would have been a perfect point at which to have the doctor sort of be like, oh, I guess I have been treating you a bit rough. And I guess taking you to the place that I took my ex-companion, uh, who I loved is also like not a great move. Um, you deserve better than that. And she she deserves her own experiences. (laughs) Yeah. And him choosing to tell her that I, him choosing to tell her that would be like a great, visual way of uh explaining that you know he's opening up and you know she's her own character in her own right without having to say it explicitly but you know mm. next week we're just back to oh i love him but he doesn't look at me um and that sucks and it also sucks because like you then when you think about it in the wider context of the season you're like maybe that scene was just there purely to introduce gallifrey again to remind you to not forget it when we come around to the finale. Um, and then I'm like, anyway, go on. I've rambled. No, like, you know, I, I, I was just going to say, I, I agree. And that is unfortunate that, um, you know, scenes that feel like they should be there to further Martha are exposition. Um, mm. and yeah, it, it's, it's just a bummer. And uh, you want to talk about forming a fucking tapestry in this episode, the tapestry that we're going to be forming about Martha across this season is dense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to uh, add about the doctor in particular or anything else about this episode, James? Uh, yeah. I think that there is some stuff going on here with, um, what Russell T does, uh, with the doctor in the long run. Right. I think that by the time you reach the end of, um, tenants run as the doctor, um, those last few episodes are very explicitly about snapping into focus, the overall sort of subtext of his run, which is him becoming more and more like a godlike figure basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're a little bit, 
far out from it here. Although there is some stuff at the end of season three as well that kind of plays into that. Um, I was reading this piece by uh, Martin Isaac, who has written a little in-depth analysis of Gridlock, and he just made such a fantastic point about the use of the hymn that um, I couldn't not quote him here as it pertains to the Doctor's uh, ascendancy to a godlike figure. Um, and I quote, It's a hymn that has spurred him to realise that the time to exchange the cross for the crown is long overdue and he wastes no time. And I love that characterization of that moment when he's hearing the hymn on the radio and, you know, even subconsciously it kicks into overdrive his godlike benevolent kind of moment in for the rest of this episode. Um, I, I thought that was such a good catch um, by my boy uh, Martin there, who I don't know at all. I just found his review, thought it was fascinating. Um, yeah, so like I... I like that element of, of this episode in the same way that I like Martha reasserting herself. Um, there are some good little character beats here and there. I just think that they are lost in the wash of, of yeah, what is ultimately a very unsuccessful episode for me. Yeah, and that's... Um, it's a real shame because I think uh, on the wider scope for the whole episode, there is so much that is, like, so good about the story. Um, and uh, as I said before, it is just a shame to be discovering this darker underbelly of this uh, story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gridlock. <laughs> Do you know the other thing? Um, and maybe this is a nice way to just sort of end it on a, like a funny little note. But um, the one thing that really that irks me, the one thing that really irks me about this story um, is that we get a mention of, in the Doctor's story about Gallifrey at the very end, we get a mention of the Daleks, and this is, like, Martha's first time learning about the Daleks. And I'm not sure that the next story we're about to go into makes any, uh, sort of mention of this. Am I wrong? I haven't actually watched it. Mention of what? Of- well, just, I don't know if the show considers the wider ramifications of following up a story where the Doctor has to lay bare the the story of how his people were decimated by the Daleks with a story which features the Daleks. Oh, um, uh, it's not really made to be a thing for Martha, but I think the way that the Doctor reacts to the Daleks in the next episode does feed off of this ending really well. Oh, good. Then I'm doubly excited for next week. Oh yeah, you should be. Um, that that dialect two-parter is uh, fantastic. And I mean, granted, now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it, obviously, before we do our next episode. So, listeners, if I go from now loving it to when we record it being all like, oh, this episode's actually secretly homophobic, um, I'm going to be heartbroken. I don't think that's the case because uh, I did only very recently rewatch this uh, or watch this uh, dialect two-parter, and yeah, I I have some hot takes loaded for the next one. And I truly cannot wait, but unfortunately that will have to wait until next week, I'm afraid. So that was our discussion of Gridlock. Yeah, Gridlock. What are you slapping on Gridlock? It is, this is the hardest one to give a grade to, because mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I feel like at, at its heart, it's just a massive contradictions, just for me. Maybe not so much for you, I don't know, but like... Everything we said is true and has ultimately meant that I've had to downgrade it a bit from what I would have liked to have given it. But it's probably still, it's probably a, a B plus. And I hate that. Okay. Because it would have been an A 
possibly an A plus before. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. And I think that, you know, if I was being like strictly objective about its technical qualities, um, I, I do think it's, again, it's beautiful, well-acted, um, well-constructed little sci-fi story that I, I enjoy quite a bit. Um, I, I mean, it probably won't surprise anybody. I think that because of its um, failures uh, emotionally and sort of conceptually and ideologically, I think it ultimately is a failure of an episode. Um, So I'm going to give this one a D plus. Shit. Yeah. Well, um, so you've just tuned into the last episode of Two Hearts. (laughs) Um, We won't be back next week. Um, Bye forever. Cut it off there. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously you're allowed to have you're allowed to have your opinions, James. That's what we do the whole show for. But um, wow, D plus that is harsh. Yeah, look, I mean, like for for context, I think that Kablam is a F. So. <laughs> oh, Kablam! Remember when Kablam oh, like God. killed somebody, and it was like a computer trying to make a point? It, oh God. Oh, yeah. Oh, Kablam is a, is, Kablam's a whole thing. Um, but look, as always, thank you so much for listening. I know this one was a bit of a heavier one, but, uh, we appreciate if you stuck through it with us because we think it's important to have these conversations sometimes. Um, if you would like to have your complicated thoughts on Doctor Who read out on the show, you can send them to us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's to the word two. Or if you'd rather, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at twoheartspod, the number. Number two. And I've been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatra Callum. And I've been James, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. We will see you beautiful people in two weeks' time for the Dalek two-parter. Uh, until then, stay safe, be kind, and I don't know. Live your truth. Bye. Boy. Welcome to the motorway. I'm the right damn people. Beep, beep. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a long episode. <laughs>